Today on Off Toggle Empire, remember, remember the 5th of November, the Behringer transfer and punts. I know of no reason why basketball season should not be on the minds of about 11 fan bases in this conference by now. I was thinking we were going to tie Wes Lunt into this, but nevertheless, we proceed on Off Toggle Empire. Your source for Big Ten Talk, it's Off Tackle Empire! Welcome back to Off Tackle Empire, the Off Tackle Empire podcast where each week uh, my computer decides it is going to wrestle me over exactly how the audio wants to go, so I am shouting from across the room at the one mic that we now have to use because the one that I was using literally on Friday, my computer decided it just doesn't know it anymore. I don't know you. Get away from me. Shouting here being like 105% of your normal speaking voice, so I think we'll be alright. And I like how your cadence for a second there was like an episode of The Dollop, <laughs> where each week, we <laughs> <laughs> where each week, I, I, Illinois football fan, Thumpasaurus, my name is Steve Braun, will be reading a story about... Why audio drivers and, like, various audio protocols, and I don't understand uh, ASIO very well, uh, because I tried, I think I, because I tried to load too many programs on my computer that were using some of the same, I don't know. Uh, this is going to make me sound like an idiot to anybody that actually knows how to podcast. Um, yeah, well, we've only been at this for several years now, so it's natural that we would continue to have very basic audio problems, but it's not like we do this for a living anyway. Yes, least, so. but in any case... I, I read off the top of my head a rant about uh, why I don't understand why this thing is not behaving the way that it did last week to my friend, <laughs> Andrew Krzyzewski, who has no idea what the technical difficulty is going to be about. <laughs> I wish I could have written an intro that good, honestly. Uh, so... We come now into the month of November here in Big Ten football season, which means you pretty much know what your team's playing for at this point. Basically, there are two teams playing for a conference title that are going to meet in a month. Everybody else is playing to either be the team that gets their ass handed to them there or to jockey for the lesser prizes such as bowl positioning that once upon a time actually meant something. I submit still do mean something to a lot of the actual fans of the sport, but again, that's not who this sport is for anymore. So, we have a few Big Ten games to get through here, a full slate now that the buys are over. Everybody's out here working with, I mean, we're once again in seasonal depression, SZN, so it's been dark for about three hours as we sit here recording on this pleasant Monday evening. We'll get right into it then. Ohio State Northwestern, first up in the noon slate, one of uh, a theme you're going to notice here this week was all the quarterbacks played really shitty because there were near tornado force winds that developed over the course of the foot, over the entire footprint over the course of the afternoon. So final score 21-7, it, it, it was both not that close and also closer than it should have been, if that makes sense. Well, Ryan Day decided that he was just going to keep tweeting through it. And by tweeting through it, I mean throwing through it. Um, partially because Northwestern kind of knew what the deal was, and they put nine men in the box. 
And just, uh, I mean, not unlike they did against Penn State, they saw some bad weather and decided to absolutely shit up a game that really by the third quarter, it was kind of apparent that they, they'd used up their only chance to score. Yeah, and Northwestern definitely realized earlier on that running the ball was going to be the only way to do anything. Running the ball out of the Wildcats, specifically. Yeah, well, they actually had a little bit of success with that, which, again, if you're Ohio State, I think the more disquieting thing about this result is not that your offense sputtered for a while. That's pretty straightforward. It's that, you're, again, your coach-slash-play caller was a little bit too stubborn in sticking with his pet play, and that's a tendency we've seen from him. It's a tendency he probably inherited from Urban Meyer, who always stuck with the quarterback run, whether it was working or not. So... That part's not surprising, and I wouldn't worry too much about it, except insofar as, what happens if you play Michigan and it's windy like this again? That's not out of the question. We saw bad weather in that game last year. Becoming like a little bit of like a diet Purdue concern here, where if you're not willing to adapt to the conditions that are going to be on the field, like you're putting yourself at a disadvantage no matter how talented you are in some cases. Well, you also have, and I don't know to what degree this is C.J. Stroud, this is coaching, uh, but they've combined to form this thing where, even in a situation like you saw with the elements and the way that North, uh, you know, that Northwestern's defense was playing them, he was like, "No, I am a serious professional prospect at quarterback. I will not take off for five yards on the first down. That is beneath me." I, yeah, it's possible. There, there really are only so many NFL stadiums left where you actually have to play outside. And of those, like, the Bills aren't drafting a quarterback. Hey, the guy he took over for ran for 178 yards in an NFL game, so, you know, there's that. Right. Justin Fields. He's a good, like, he's not a Fields athlete. I don't mean that in the pun that it kind of turned into, Mm -hmm. but but Stroud is good enough to pick up yards. Are you saying that he's he's not the kind of caliber athlete you could have gotten in Marshall Fields? (laughs) Justin Fields. You know, there's a... You know, there's still to this day a pretty active bring back Marshall Fields community in Chicago. Do you mean the department store? Yeah, it's Marshall Fields, man. It's just not been the same since Macy's bought it. What do you mean bring it back? Well, you got you want Marshall Fields again. It's got to be Marshall Fields. But what? But it, it's a de- so for one thing, it's a department store, which means it's you know doomed for extinction anyway, and so that it, it's now called. You know what? I can't say that I don't understand it because for the longest time, what's the what would you think of the name of the concert venue out in Clarkston being? <laughs> Pine Knob. Now it's Pine Knob. For about 30, 40 years, they had changed the name to DTE, which is after the power company around here that bought the naming rights, and then the entity that runs it changed it back to its original name, which was Pine Knob. But anybody between the age of about 50 and dead here will insists that it was never called anything but Pine Knob. It's like, all right, well, I'm in my mid-30s, and I you know, lived here for almost 10 years and had been here many times before that. It's been DTE my entire life, so I'm going to call it that. And also not really care. Like, it's going to be the same thing with Kobo now that they changed its name to TCF and now Huntington. It's like, I, people are just going to call that Kobo forever and insist that that's what it's called. As however. Though, as though there's some real meaning to it. However, uh, we're talking about Marshall Filtz people... They're in Chicago. What do you call this the highest building in Chicago? It's the Sears Tower. Yeah, I would probably in my head still think of it as... It's as the Sears Tower. Sure. Anyway, I'm just... 
I continue to be fascinated by uh, by New Mexico State's death chart having a guy <laughs> named Bryce Bears. Bryce Bears. Bears. It's just Bears with an extra S on the end. Bryce Bears. If they're ever looking to shore up the death chart behind Fields, Bears. Uh, Bears in the shotgun. <laughs> Bears in Soldier Fields. So anyway, all this is to say that uh, C.J. Stroud left some yards on the field, but you know, to to be fair. Probably approaching this like at some point the thing that they want to do is going to work and I don't have to do everything within my power to win the game. Yeah, and eventually they realized they were incorrect about that. I mean it's Northwestern actually outgained Ohio State in this game. The to the pass and rush splits were remarkably even. Neither team got to eighty yards through the air. Uh, there was not the only game in the conference on Saturday where that didn't happen. Where that happened, where neither quarterback got to eighty passing yards. So again, just hard to overemphasize how much havoc. Because if even if you if you're at home, if you go out and do some yard work, I'm like, oh yeah, you know it is a little breezy out here. It would be hard to throw. Like it's hard to you, you have to remember if you're not in the stadium, haven't been in one for a game like that recently, that the effect of having the tall stands on either side of the field is often to create a wind tunnel. So. It's much worse, for the most part, on the field than it is, even if you were to go outside and feel it living relatively close to the stadium. So, Well, I was uh, on the shores of Lake St. Clair uh, running the 11th mile of a half marathon into the wind with a pre-race weight of 296 pounds. I wanted to die. <laughs> well, you didn't, though, and persevered through it. And congratulations for that, by the way. Your first half marathon, correct? Yes. I don't think I'll ever want to run even half that distance in one sitting, if I'm being totally honest. Um, but in terms of whether there's anything else to say about this, I mean, if you're Northwestern, does this give you hope, perhaps, that there is a game left on the schedule you could possibly win? Well, let's take a look and see if there's any reason to think that. They fall to 1-8, and eight, but with arguably their best effort, you can determine for yourselves how much value you want to put into it given the conditions on the field. They put up a fight against Maryland in good conditions. They of course shitted up a game against Penn State, lost by 10 in uh, similarly bad and rainy conditions. Um, now look, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that the funniest possible way the Big Ten West goes is that Illinois beats Michigan, and then blows the Big Ten West by losing to 1-10 Northwestern. It will result in absolutely the most unhinged content in the history of this blog. <laughs> I appreciate that you're willing to vocalize these things, because honestly, we're good enough friends that I wouldn't do it to you. Look, so. man, I'm... I'm... It, 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 it's like the, you know... But I, it my, helps, it's like it, my team getting scoring... Not, my, my pro team scoring uh, nine points against the worst defense in the league. If you saw this happening to somebody else, would you laugh your ass? Yes, of course. Of course. It is objectively very funny that they did this to themselves. Uh, but... It does, it, again, like, it comes to resemble something of a modern art piece at some point. And that was, like, we had a couple of very surprising results in the conference. So that if you were to look at the box scores at, like, the very end of the noon slate of games in particular on Saturday, you would have been like, oh, okay, uh... I don't get it, but maybe it's not meant to be got. And so, Northwestern the rest of the way, two road trips to Minnesota to Purdue. 
I can't imagine they're going to be favored. I mean, they're not going to be favored to win a game the rest of the way. No. Of course not. They've got one win, but... They're, they're, they're against teams that have already... Well, I, I... Purdue has six wins, right? No, I don't think they do. I don't know off the top of my head. Um, they're a game behind you. They lost a game in Syracuse. And they're still a game behind Illinois. Yeah, so I think... So they'd be five and... Yeah. Four? Five and three? Yeah, five and, five and four, I think. Yeah. Because they have a nine-conference loss. Okay. Never mind then. They've got one team that's currently not bowl eligible. Technically, but... It's also a thing where you don't see any of those three remaining opponents, and Illinois being the last one, of course, as having such a huge talent advantage that Northwestern shouldn't be able to give them a shot. But that's been the case plenty of times this year. Like Based on how those opponents have performed, I mean, even if you put aside the non-conference, like they should not have been outclassed by this year's Wisconsin like that. They should not have been outclassed by this year's Iowa like that. But they did. They were, and they did. Um, that they've had even kind of close games against Ohio State and Penn State. I can't help but think that is a little bit more about the opponent than it is about Northwestern. About the opponent and the conditions, too. That's true, yeah. Penn State was also played in a driving rainstorm. And the the most precision, you know, high-octane college offense is still going to struggle with adverse weather conditions. That Northwestern lost the game by, the Penn State game by 10 points, won the turnover battle by 2. Yeah. So... There's that, but uh, I, I, I saw somebody uh, in the Sunday morning coming down thread typo Jim O'Neill and labeled him as him O'Neill. And I was like, I didn't think he did that good. He's not him. <laughs> Becoming a little bit thinking, we'll circle back to that point later. Put a pin in that, everybody, because that's good. That's Chekhov's him that we're mentioning right there. But anyway, we'll have to continue moving if we're going to get through this in anything approaching a timely fashion. So, the bits of broken chair game, Minnesota... Yeah, speaking of getting through it in a timely fashion, the Minnesota Golden Gophers. Just trying to beat traffic. Minnesota 20 and Nebraska 13 after a 10-0 Nebraska advantage after the first quarter. Turned into a 20-3 Minnesota romp the rest of the way. Minnesota lost Tanner Morgan to another injury. This time, Ethan Kaliak Manis looked a lot better prepared for the moment, um, fair to say. Not AK. E- still not enormous production. I mean, he only threw 12 passes and completed half of them, but did hit a couple of chunk plays, did get the offense moving a Made little bit Made the better. right reads, though. That's the key thing. It's, it's, it's a read-based offense. Yes, it's heavily RPO-based, and all you have to be able to do really is hit slants. And then you have a couple guys slip through and get decent you, 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 read, read, blah, blah, blah. you read the defense and you make the decision on what to do. And he was unable to do that in his relief appearances. Hard to simulate an opponent at, like get, at, at a scout team. I think it's probably a difficult thing to simulate without game reps. And so it's certainly an encouraging sign. There were some rumblings in the slack that Nebraska is closing in on making their coaching decision. If that's the case... You tend to think on paper that making a mid-season decision probably increases the odds that the interim is just going to get the job permanently. So let's start there for a moment. If Mickey Joseph were to be the hire for Nebraska, that would be puzzling from the outside, correct? Yes, because usually in a situation where a team has like fallen apart, fired a coach mid-season because they're just too far behind the rest of the competition here, You've got a big talent disadvantage, and Nebraska does not have that. 
Right, and that that the interim has taken this roster, still more talented than most of the teams they're playing, and not been able to get much of anything out of it in terms of wins and losses. I, I mean, I haven't paid attention to the recruiting trail, but I can't imagine it's going well. What is he really going to tell them as long as he's got an interim tag on him? Like, hey, man, campus will be nice whether I'm here or not. I, like, <laughs> it's kind of a depressing bitch to, to throw, you know? Um, oh, we had him in the first half, not gonna lie! <laughs> it's been quiet the last couple days. Maybe this was a little bit of a premature rumor, but it was something that was discussed. Nebraska, again, one of the earlier fires in the country this year, and still one of the better jobs available. Nebraska did struggle to make, uh, you know, explosive passing plays happen without Casey Thompson. Yes, well, plainly. Plainly. I don't think the plan was ever for anybody but him to play real starter snaps, which, given that he's had some injury troubles in his career, maybe wasn't the best plan. And the well, they, they, they brought like, in guys with a pedigree. Yeah, well, I mean, Smothers was the backup last year and really recruited to fit the offense that Frost wanted to run, a very mobile guy who's not the best thrower of the ball. But Chuba Purdy was also a fairly talented recruit. I mean, Michigan State wanted him. Uh, blew a four-star out of Arizona originally, and certainly had the family lineage with his brother lighting it up for Iowa State for a while. But, that again, it's just another example of that they have the talent, but they don't ever seem to be able to put it together. Like, there are moments of brilliance. The the Trey Palmer game earlier this year, Anthony Grants has moments. But overall, it's just been a long time since the whole felt like more than the sum of its parts. They've assembled good parts. And Nebraska, it, in the first half of this game, absolutely had Minnesota's offense totally locked down. Uh, I mean, it was kind of... Uh, it was almost like Tech Mobile when... You've called the correct play on defense every single time. <laughs> they, they just could get absolutely nothing going. Uh, Nebraska wasn't able to build a bigger lead than 10 to nothing, but it certainly would have seemed like, had the defense continued to trend as they were, this could have been enough. But, you know, ultimately, Minnesota just kept getting offensive snaps. <laughs> you can't expect 13 points to hold up in a conference game. That's not a realistic expectation. And so that, again, one field goal after the end of the first quarter, that's not going to win you the game. So I think Nebraska is basically playing out the string here. They still have a couple of emotionally invested games left to deal with. But the focus, I have to imagine, is entirely on the coaching search and next season. So... We've now covered a couple of games that had the final result we expected and maybe didn't get there in quite the way you would have thought on paper. Now we move into what-the-hell-happened-here territory. Iowa 24, Purdue 3. Just archetypal Je- Jeff behavior here. Throwing 43 times in a cyclone. But let's not lose track of the fact that suddenly, abruptly, out of nowhere... Iowa runs the ball again. Uh, they turn to Caleb Johnson, the true freshman, and he has an absolute breakout performance, hitting 200 on the dot in like 22 or 23 carries, I think. It's a really interesting thing that's happened here because um, a lot of times, you know, when you, you've got a back of the caliber of like a Nick Singleton or a Travion Henderson, it is a matter of, well, put in that guy, he's better. Yeah. But in a case where you've got a a bunch of guys that seem athletically very similar and you just can't run the ball no matter who you're giving it to. 
it's a matter of, well, this offense, something is broken here. The offensive line is just not generating, is just not opening the holes that they should. Apparently the deal is all of Iowa's running backs were bad. Apparently that, I mean, I'm simplifying it. I don't really think that's what it is. I think there have been some adjustments, but that's certainly what it would look like at a glance. Yeah, well, it's also, this is another example of the way that this offensive staff approaches things sometimes maybe is a little bit too stubborn for its own good because they see this kid in practice, they theoretically know what he's capable of, and I get that, yeah, in practice a lot of times freshmen aren't getting real snaps, but if, I mean, the guy has had a few touches here and there in games up to the season, he has earned the trust of the coaches enough to be on the field, which means they have seen enough of him in practice to have an idea of what he's capable of. And that they waited this long to give a real opportunity to him. I mean, this is after, like, Gavin Williams was injured for a good part of the season. I'm not sure if he is fully healthy because he's never really taken the role that I think most Iowa fans would have assumed going into this year. And LaShawn Williams has, I think there was one game where he cracked 100 yards. But other than that, he hasn't really looked like more than just a guy. So, they, you know, they don't push their buttons anywhere else. This is a position where if the guys know how to read a zone block the same way, like you don't come to Iowa as a running back if you can't read a zones. So why they couldn't give this kid an opportunity earlier, I think is going to be a head scratcher. Uh, of course, the other thing is playing in the same windy conditions as everywhere else in the conference, Peters had his best game in a long time. I can't say off the top of my head, best game of his career. There's probably been one or two other performances like this. But 13 for 23 for 192 yards, two touchdowns, no picks. Just a little interesting that on the day, a, a guy who is notorious for overthrowing every receiver who runs a pattern for him, I think when there is a strong enough wind to bat his passes down into the actual passing lanes, he has an excellent day. So oh, there you go, Iowa. All you have to do is go go play you know, on, on, the, force, on the forsaken planes of Tierra del Fuego or something. Somewhere where you get intense wins all the time. Schedule your next couple games there if Spencer comes back next year and you'll be right as rain. Yeah, for, for Purdue, they, I mean, there were some punts, as you would expect from a game involving Iowa, to open the set, and then they allowed a 91-yard touchdown drive. Uh, then they immediately threw an interception and then allowed a 51-yard touchdown drive. At the very least, they threw the interception pretty far. Uh, but after that touchdown, they threw another interception. And then it was 17 to nothing. What do you do now? I mean... Now you have to throw more. Exactly. So, you know, to your point about 43 pass attempts, I actually, believe it or not, don't think Jeff Brown wanted to do that this time. Obviously, he's not going to complain about the fact that it just so <laughs> happens that his quarterback had to throw oh, it around. Oh, we had to throw it around. The but, other. like, there was nothing else to do. At this point, yeah. I, like I said, I, I I can't I can't with you, Jeff. I can't do this anymore. So Charlie Jones got a bunch of targets, came away with eleven receptions for one hundred four yards, including a forty-one yarder. Ultimately, none of his contributions really meant anything because he wasn't able to break free for any any big plays. Uh, he wasn't able to keep the chains moving. Uh, being Purdue's only guy that caught more than two balls. I mean, that's yeah. just... Yeah. I, I said he was going to play the David Bell role. He did not. Well, he played the role. He didn't play it especially well yes. because 
Bell was able to not only get open, but also terrorize Iowa's usually very strong tackling defensive backs after the catch. Jones didn't really do that. And so, as you said, yeah, averaging fewer than 10 yards per reception is a difficult thing to do on any kind of meaningful volume, but that's what the story was. And so Iowa settles into five and four because of events elsewhere in the division. Suddenly they're very much alive in this division race. I mean, most of the division is very much alive in this race. What if they end up winning it again, man? After the way this offense looked for the first half of the season, they still end up winning the division. It, it, the episode of South Park with the smug cloud. Can you imagine the Ferentz press conference from Indianapolis as back-to-back West Division champions? Don't you put that on me, man. <laughs> I, I came out here. We gotta speak these things into it. I came out We gotta consider today, all contingencies. I dug myself out to provide... I couldn't be bothered to actually write the Champagne Room article, but to provide them a bullet point of five reasons... That even though I feel very shitty about Illinois, they're still going to beat Purdue. I managed to get that out of myself today, and now you're going to have me. Well, that's all. This that's situation. an entirely that's an entirely different thing. And again, like, is is it worse if a tree falls on your house if you've never considered that it's possible, or do you want to run the mental drill? Just like by way of example, that's all I'm talking about. And I mentioned that because the power company came out today and told me we're trimming your tree. They didn't mention how or which one, and it's nowhere near a power line, but hopefully they don't mangle my tree too bad, because well, I kind of like looking at that tree. Well, they did announce that they were going to trim more trees than ever. They didn't announce that it was going to necessarily have any rhyme or reason to it, just yeah, that they were going to trim them. I also live on like one of the three blocks in Oakland County that hasn't lost power in the last few years, so I... I don't know what this could be. They took out a bunch of trees in this park over here for no apparent reason, uh, but in any case, Purdue, after you know, Purdue after failing to break through the glass ceiling that is beating Wisconsin, <laughs> just I mean, talk about flying too close to the sun, and now they are on the. I mean, this this was just I don't know what else to say about this other than uh, beating Iowa was the thing about their. Consi- this, the style of their offense that consistently worked, and now that has also failed them. Not to mention they had they, they had Iowa's top two receivers transfer to Purdue so that they could get used more, and they instead of that they got abused. And that was something else that got well. I mean, let's not pretend that those guys aren't having immensely more productive and useful careers now than they were at Iowa. True, but they've won just as many games. Right, and. The other thing that was mentioned was you could tell from some of the comments from the coaching staff that apparently it has been suggested or believed or inferred, I don't know how publicly, by the Iowa coaching staff that there was some level of tampering involved in getting one or both of those guys to West Lafayette. Now, most people would dismiss that out of hand because it's like all you have to do is look at how these offenses play on the field, and that's the only case you need, but... Plainly, the belief had some... I mean, perhaps there is a coaching motivation differential here. Well, I mean, yeah. Even if there is no tampering. If I can coach, certainly yeah. understand being pretty mad about it. And I can certainly understand the Ferentz is thinking there is, because, again, you know, you guys know Brian. Of course he's going to think that. And, you know, this is when I use my secret weapon, true freshman running back, who's way better than the other guys. Like, anyway. As far as Purdue goes, the opportunity for this to be a capstone breakthrough season that they've been building for, again, like super senior quarterback, a bunch of 
upperclassmen receivers and offensive line. Like, this was supposed to be the year they were building towards the opportunity for that to actually be the case instead of just being another guaranteed rate bowl or whatever it ends up being is quickly slipping through their fingers. Really need to write the ship in a big way this week. Didn't Mayweather actually, like, schedule Pacquiao, like, somewhere near the end of his prime, but then Pacquiao got beat in the build-up to that? I sure don't remember. It, 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 it's... I'm comparing this canon game that's upcoming to that. If then Mayweather had then taken on an opponent, you know, that's not a total tomato can and also lost. (laughs) We'll get to that. I can tell you're chomping at the bit, but we're still going to try to proceed in order here, so... Maryland 10, Wisconsin 23. Can't say I saw this result coming. Perhaps I should have, again, yet another offense that was obviously tampered by the weather conditions as Tungo Bailoa, yet another quarterback in the conference that did not throw for 100 yards. Both quarterbacks actually threw for exactly 77 yards, the same number. Mertz only had five completions, and Wisconsin still comfortably controlled this game. 17-0 at halftime. Maryland scored their touchdown. I can't say garbage time because, you know, they were only down a couple of scores then, but still late enough in the game that it wasn't a serious threat to impact the outcome. So if you're Maryland here, you're concerned on the one hand that the run game you had built the last couple weeks with Tungo Bailoa out was not durable enough against the defense that's been down. Like, they're definitely still better against the run in the past, but... It's not a classic Wisconsin defense that we're used to seeing. You get your starting quarterback back in the lineup. Difficult weather conditions to be sure, but still, a steady hand running the offense. And you end up getting 10 points. I I think only a little bit more than 200 total yards. Let me pop a box score here so I'm not totally making things up as I am want to do. No, yeah, they didn't. 189 total yards. I knew it was something like that. Um, So... It's one thing if the conditions are making it difficult to pass, but Maryland's got the personnel and has had some success with a ground-based attack, so if they weren't able to scheme something that worked against Wisconsin... That is Wisconsin troublesome. is not an elite run defense like in years past. No, um, they're not. Not as good. But the past defense... The reason that you're yeah. evaluating their interim coach is because three straight teams ran on them that uh, you wouldn't have expected to be able to have huge success running the ball. Well, you know, except the last one. You'd expect Illinois, but not the likes of Washington State and Ohio State. <laughs> well, this year, yeah. So, I don't know what to make of this game for either team, though, big picture. Because Maryland, you've already lost to Michigan. They have Ohio State left on the schedule. But even if you win, you would need Michigan to lose twice to get to the division. Like, that's basically out of reach. So, you're basically, I mean, you've locked up bowl eligibility much earlier than you usually do. I think I know what to make of this season for Maryland. It comes down to the Penn State game. Are they ready to jump into a tier above we can scrap to a bowl? Because they gotta they gotta prove they can compete with Penn State to be there. They they competed with Michigan. They didn't get a win. Uh, they didn't do so hot against Wisconsin, considering they're very similar to Purdue. That was such a good game. Yeah. Uh, considering how similar they are to Purdue, maybe shouldn't have been too much of a surprise, but. Uh, yeah, that's gotta be what Maryland's thinking about. I know they also don't particularly like Penn State. They compete for a lot of the same recruits that Penn State does. So yeah, as far as I'm concerned, that's their whole season now. That's that's their goal. That's what they're playing for is beat Penn State. 
Yeah, I mean, I understand that James Franklin labels everywhere as in-state recruiting, but when he talks about Maryland and New Jersey, I think he actually means it. So, yes, for Maryland and Rutgers, that is always, that's going to be the school that they're aiming at. Most of the rest of the conference probably thinks of Ohio State, perhaps Michigan in that way, but Penn State is that team for Maryland. So, yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point. And as far as Wisconsin, again, like we mentioned, one of those losses is a non-conference loss, which means the conference record keeps them in the picture. There's a lot left to be determined here with most of the games now shifting to divisional matchups these last few weeks. All right. We have put it off as a lot. Oh, no. We actually, there's another afternoon slate game we could talk about first because there's a, there's a pet project of ours that was involved in this Penn State-Indiana affair, which otherwise was a very uninteresting drubbing by the Nittany Lions. Tom Allen, you son of a bitch. Benching Connor Bazalak for a quarterback who is still in the transfer portal, still after making another start, remains in the transfer portal as far as I know. And the explanation that I found poking around is, well, Bazalak's had a, an accumulation of injuries, so they gave him this game off. And I was like, okay, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right hold on. It's like taking Clayton Kershaw out during the perfect game. They're chasing history, damn it. Uh, okay, yeah, you, that's a thing you could compare it to. Okay, sure. Um, <laughs> what, what this more is, for, so for me, obviously they're not going to, if they're aware of that record, they're certainly not going to place value on it. But what this says to me is, at, up until this point, whatever percentage Basilak is playing at, less than 100, but that's the case with a lot of players, but whatever percentage he was playing at, they had determined to be superior to a Jack Tuttle who had not seen the field and all their other options. And then against Penn State, one of the better teams left on their schedule, I say one of because Indiana's got an unforgiving slate here, they basically, I mean, I'll be interested to see where this goes from here, right? Plainly, I, I don't, I can't imagine Basilek's injury is really that severe because He's played through it with no apparent limitations up until this point. Unless he, unless the fact that he's looked so immobile this year is in part because of that injury, whatever it is. But anyway, turning then to a quarterback who hasn't played much at all this year is certainly a choice. But then when Tuttle got hurt, also a thing that's going to happen with this offensive line, they didn't even have Basilag dressed, so he couldn't go into the game in a relief capacity, and so they have to go into their deep depth. It's no better than it has been the last few years. Not many teams are going to be good when you get down to QB3. And so their backup quarterbacks threw, I mean deep, deep backup quarterbacks, threw a total of three interceptions. Neither of them were anywhere near ready. Donovan McCauley has moved to wide receiver, so it's not even a let's get this kid ready for the future. They gave up on making him a quarterback, so... I don't know, man. I don't know what Tom Allen is doing here. It's one thing to bench your quarterback if he's a little bit dinged up, and it's a game that you basically are waving the flag on winning. But to not even dress him? Um, and because then, now you're basically... You wave the flag on the entire season here because you're not going to beat Ohio State. And you'd have to to have a realistic shot at the ball. That was, that mean, was I, a sixth. About I mean, all I can figure is... You maybe There's still the five-win window, which is going to be wider open than it has been well, in the past. Well, there's that, and there's also the idea that you can... Maybe knock off one of Michigan State and Purdue if you if you you know if you if you gather up all of your key and fire it in one single <laughs> massive blast, well, right? If you yeah. you know you say that Basilek can't. Go, I mean, you're not fighting for the playoff here. You maybe say, okay, 
well, maybe when we actually have the opportunity to prove something, it's worth, you know, putting our leader back out there in this condition to see if he can gut it out. In the meantime, we can get him two weeks of rest. I can see that. <laughs> we'll see. I mean, Tom Allen, you got to figure out what you're playing for and how you're going to inspire people that are going to want to come to Indiana to play football. Yeah. Yeah. I, look, I and you, you got to you got to win another game. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, they have to win another game. You can't. Because that would be a nine-game losing streak to end the season. You can't do that. You can't go from three and zero, very promising start again. Like a little bit of a oh, again we're three and zero, but still three and zero to not winning a game after the calendar turned to October. Like you can't do that. If you, if you look at if you look at post-game win expectancies, this is an Indiana team that should probably have one win, which is not really an improvement from last year. No, it's a step backwards. It's a big step backwards. Uh, uh, yeah, so if Basilek is healthy, they can definitely beat Michigan State even without Cam Camper. I still think this is a defense that if you put any pressure on them through the air, they will fall to pieces. And the Purdue game, I mean, who knows where Purdue is going to be by then. They've lost some games that they probably should have won this year. I, the fact that Purdue's run defense suddenly looks as bad as it ever has isn't going to matter against Indiana, but yeah, I suppose you could say that if you're choosing to regroup in the hopes of grabbing a win or two at the end of the year and rebuilding some momentum, I could, I guess I could see that. Because they had two losses that were by one score against teams that were in, you know, you, you should probably file in the gettable category mm-hmm. before playing, you know, extremely talented teams for, for two weeks in a row. Yeah. Okay, we put it off long enough and we come to it at long last. Well, okay, look. Something came across my phone also while this Penn State-Indiana game was going on. Okay? Very strange game. Very strange game in, in Champaign. Maybe a game, if you're not a Michigan State or an Illinois fan, maybe you didn't even notice this. And, okay. and, what, and what's that mean? But what happened... Okay. Okay, think about this. Illinois lost a game to Michigan State that they probably should have lost by more than one score while leaving a lot of points in the red zone. They've struggled in the red zone all year, elected not to take short kicks. Why would they do that? Why would Illinois do a thing where they would leave points on the board in a game like this? Well, when you think about... You think about what happened last year when Purdue was unranked, which they which they certainly will be, and Purdue went to play a team that was in the top twelve or so of the AP poll. It'll be it'll be. What did they do? Yeah. What did they do? They won both those games. So then you so then you look at you look at what Illinois did here, and you realize they've got Purdue here. And the goal is to win. What's the goal here? What are they trying to do? Trying, trying to win the West. So again, very strange result in Champaign. Very strange game. Very strange loss. If you're not picture, if you're not cycling through the meme images of Windhorst in your head as you listen to this, then you're not online enough to listen to this podcast. We would kindly ask you to navigate away from our site. You know, I did. I don't know if I said it on the podcast or just. In a car with you guys on the way to watch a Detroit City game, but I did suggest that per- perhaps Illinois could take a tactical L to avoid 
flying too close to the sun when unranked Purdue comes to town. I didn't actually want them to do it, but I suggested that maybe they should. I think you did mention it on the way to one of Detroit City's many disappointing home draws that we witnessed this season. And, of course, this is all tongue-in-cheek because they're not actually choosing to lose this game, but in terms of the vibe and the flow and everything, yeah, now you've, you're not flying quite so high. It is a cross-divisional game when the division matchups are going to matter very much down the stretch here. So let's take a look at how this happened, because we haven't gathered yet. Michigan State did pull the upset as 17-point dogs on the road. Not the first time in the Mel Tucker era they've done that. But nonetheless, my, my gobs are thoroughly smacked by this result. Now, the first way that this happened was the 17-point spread was a little much. A little much, but you got to remember, Michigan State had eight players suspended all on the defensive side of the ball and another handful of major players hurt and had other guys get hurt during the game. They were very shorthanded on the side of the ball where they're already pretty damn bad. But on the other hand, you know, for Illinois to beat anybody by a lot of points, now they've gotten a lot of yards, but what their scores suggest is that perhaps they are very good at getting yards and moving the ball from 20 to 20 and not so much inside the red zone. And what happened? Exactly what you said, and actually the step that I wrote here is incomplete. They were, Illinois was 0 for 4 on 4th down when I started this. They ended up 1 for 6. Um, another terrible day in the red zone, as you mentioned, and another hidden yard thing. And so when somebody looks at the box score on this game on the service level, they're going to say, man, Illinois outgained Michigan State by 150 yards. How is this even as close as it was? You know, because Illinois had to score and get a two-point conversion relatively late in the fourth quarter to close it to a one-score game. How did this margin end up happening? Well, Illinois got a lot more yards because Illinois had to get a lot more yards because their starting field position was absolutely disastrous by comparison to Michigan State because the single player versus player, I don't know that I've seen a more lopsided matchup. You can maybe think of, like, certain quarterback matchups, but other than that, I have not seen a single bigger advantage at one spot for Michigan State this year than Berenger over Robertson punting the ball. Yep, he learned well from the sensei Blake Hayes during his walk-on year at Illinois. Uh, Hugh Robertson, I'm really... Brett Bielema is doing a Lovey Smith Bears thing with him. <laughs> he is our punter. Uh, I mean, we bas basically Illinois played the Indiana game again. Um... Kind of a disturbing thing to do at home at this stage of the season in November. Yeah. But it was complete with two just... Because in addition to a punt that Robertson lost track of on the way to his foot and kicked into the line, he also had one where he kicked it 39 yards with the wind. The The wind was uh, gusting up to 50. I thought he had the... I thought he was kicking into the wind at that point. No, he kicked a 39-yarder with the wind. Um, like... From deep in his territory. It wasn't a precision punt. Yeah. Uh, that was very bad. What else was very bad was a uh, opening the second half with an illegal fair catch signal to start the drive on their own seven. I Yeah, there was that, and then there was a later kickoff by Michigan State that MSU very nearly recovered. I don't think... I would love to pretend that they had called that sort of trick play on purpose, 
No, I think it was just the kickoff guy sent it into the wind, and then the wind stopped it, so it came down on, like, the 25, and one of MSU's gunners almost, almost recovered it first. So, yeah, it's really down-to-down. Illinois was a better team, not, like, not, frankly, not by the margin that I expected them to be. Like Not by enough to overcome a whole bunch of mistakes, which they have been in previous games. I mean, Illinois ran reasonably effectively, but... If you end up looking at Chase Brown's final yards and he took most of their meaningful carries, comes up to roughly four yards a pop. That's not especially impressive. They didn't really, I mean, again, the conditions were what they were. Michigan State hit a few more plays, but also on the first play of the game, Michigan State, you know, thorned through an awful interception, apparently dramatically underestimating the force of the wind he was throwing directly into. So he lobbed the ball straight to the defender instead of the tight end. It was sort of open behind him, but. Well, and then the tight end saw this and was just like, meh, if he gets it, he gets it. Uh, anyway, that yeah, tight not, end... Not the best effort to fight back. That tight end then stood on uh, Quan Martin for a 15-yard personal foul and did absolutely nothing the rest of the game. Still posted a cool video of himself smoking that Illinois pack because apparently stood. we abused him or something. Yeah, stood on is not really a fair representation of what happened. Martin tangled himself up there trying to draw the foul, and he did, which is a smart play, but let's not misrepresent that. So, yeah, it, it's not surpri- especially surprising that a pass catcher in this offense has been disappointing. And again, honestly, I understand it in these conditions, and they actually finally got a little bit of traction in the run game that just has not been working for the most part. But in pass blocking, it was a harrowing experience for most of the day that Thorne only took the hits that he did, mostly just because he was getting it out quick. Michigan State was moving the pocket a little bit as well. They did some of that, yeah. uh, You were saying that you didn't understand why they were trying to do that. It, It gave Thorne an extra second or so, and this was sorely needed. They sacked him one time. I don't remember commenting on that in particular, but it I probably It was did. something that they hadn't really done much of. Yeah, well and they probably should. Like Thorn no one's gonna confuse Thorne for Justin Fields, but he's a decent enough athlete. Um and his Frank his accuracy isn't great when he's in the pocket, so I got I understand why I part of me does understand why they don't want to move him, because his his awful interceptions, which he does still have occasionally, are usually ones where he is outside the pocket and decides you know what, fuck it, I am Pat Mahomes. And he tries to make a throw like that. He's like, no, 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 you're not Pat Mahomes. You're going to throw it directly to a center fielder who's staring at you. He still has a little bit of that in him, and so I think the coaches have basically tried to remove that temptation from his line of sight. It was a good, it was a, it was a, it was a good offensive game plan, uh, in my opinion. It neutralized the pass rush enough to, you know, provide some explosive plays for... Michigan State, also, Illinois just overran a lot of plays when uh, when Berger was making a lot of making a lot of hay late in the game, and... He saw some cutback lanes better than I have seen from him this year, to be honest. There have been times where I'm like, I don't know if this guy really gets what this blocking scheme is going to do for him, but... On the other hand, just a, a piss-poor offensive game plan from Barry Looney Jr., who I'm not going to criticize too much because... The offense does so many more things than it was able to do last year, except the one thing that Illinois' offense from 2021 exceeded at was getting really short yards near the goal line, and this offense is completely allergic to it, and 
there's a there's a point at which the one adjustment that I think you need to make from this that you can reasonably make during the course of a season. It's a response not just to this, but to the trend is Illinois needs to start kicking short field goals. You know me. You know how much I hate short field goals. But you, you have and, a good enough defense that those points on the board would put meaningful game pressure on your opponent. Which they absolutely would have. Now, <clears> granted, <throat> this was a very windy game, but they had several inside the 10. Um, they they gave the ball over on down in the, in the red zone and that enough is the, like, times again, that they could have provided the margin for the game. The only part of Michigan State's defense that works is their goal line stance. Like, they actually are good at keeping teams out of the end zone. So this is, close. you know... Adjustments like, I mean, I guess I don't know what you can do about the fact that this offensive line, the interior has just never, was never going to get the push like last year's. And the coaching has compensated for this really well by, you know, having a pretty horizontal oriented offense that can get the ball to guys in space pretty well, uh, scheming guys open for Tommy DeVito. But a number of very baffling things such as, they didn't really take any downfield shots with the wind until they absolutely had to on a desperation drive, and DeVito completed some very accurate balls longer than 10 yards. Yeah, the other thing that any... For the, uh, for the foreseeable future, any opponent of Michigan State's that does not run crossing routes until the Spartans show you they've stopped it, I don't understand what you're doing. Uh, you know, a couple weeks ago against Michigan, Luke Schoonmaker who's a good tight end but not exactly a world-beating athlete, was open all day because these linebackers do not know how to follow crossing routes and coverage. They're really good stopping the run and piled up a bunch of tackles hitting Brown after, you know, three, four, five yards. But if you see guys like Van Sumeren and Halliday in coverage, that ought to be, I mean, how do you not have an audible to a crossing route, especially with a pretty good and deep tight end group that Illinois has? So anyway... A lot of things about the Illinois game plan that baffled me. Well, another one was there were in situations like I remember the Minnesota game. This was happening every now and then. Kind of how he got hurt in the Iowa game. But running speed option in short yardage with Tommy DeVito was absolutely balls every time Illinois was using it. They didn't do it once. They didn't run anything for for DeVito. And it's, it's almost like... You know, I'm not going to, you know, they they should have had a better game plan. They should have played better. Um, in particular, I, I, I thought the front seven over-pursued a lot, and, you know, the defensive backs had pressure put on them. Of course, the first way, the easiest way to not get carved up by a kid from Naperville is to kick out all the interlopers that keep recruiting my hometown. Um, but, failing that, you got to get pressure on the quarterback. Uh which they weren't able to counter Michigan State's adjustment to do. Uh, the other thing for, from a preparation standpoint is that, once again, this is the 100th year in which the Fighting Illini have played in Memorial Stadium. For each of those 100 years, when the calendar turns to the, third, to the fourth week of October, every single game is going to have these swirling winds flowing from south to the, towards the north end zone, gusting up to 40 miles an hour. Every single time. You can assume that's going to be the case. Uh, the students, way up in those nosebleeds in the north end zone that Ron Gunther packed them in, they don't actually really always leave during these things. A lot of times they, they go to different parts of the stadium where they're not getting blasted in the face with this wind. And yet, the other team always seems to be way more prepared to play in Champaign than Illinois does in these wind games. 
I was really hoping, at the very least, Brett Bielema acknowledged that this was the case in the postgame. Usually you see coaches just like, they just pretend the wind isn't there, and they pretend the wind was never there, and that there was just ghosts. Yeah. So I guess if that's the best I can do, um, again, I, I don't want to take away from what was a very disappointing performance, probably a bit of you know complacency with the offensive game plan and execution, but... I also got to respect this because, you know, um, there are a few messed up overtime plays in a game last year from Brett Bielema being 0-5 against the Big Ten East. What was he brought to Illinois to do? <laughs> Compete against the Big Ten West, win the division. Were there, was there anything else in there? We are right Apparently on schedule. Apparently not. We are right on schedule. All right. <laughs> so look, I'm not going to do all this shit that you're not paying me to do. That's not in my job description, so... I'm not going to do it. Another piece of evidence in this game that Mel Tucker is absolutely terrible at clock management. Um, Holy balls. Nursing an eight-point lead, driving down into the Illinois red zone. They end up throwing a pass on third and goal from outside the 10 that was incomplete and stopped the clock with about a minute left. I understand not going for the field goal there because... Again, Ben Patton had already missed an extra point and a chip shot field goal in this game, and Michigan State's kicking game has been terrible all year. So fine. You have an unreliable kicker, so you can't make it a two-score game that way. At the very least, you have to run the ball or call a play so sure to be a completion that the clock continues to move. Because Tommy DeVito, as a decent college quarterback, is not going to drive them all the way down the field in 30 seconds with no timeouts. That wasn't going to happen, but that extra 30 seconds was enough time to make it interesting. Um, That Michigan State ended up escaping means that in another week or two, this incident will probably be forgotten by most people. It will not be forgotten by me. I think listeners of this podcast know this is the kind of mental sticky note that will exist in my files for the rest of time. Because, of course, Illinois had a chance to tie the game up, uh, in part because of the missed field goal, in part because of a missed extra point that was making it an eight-point game. And when I say they had a chance... I mean, they got all the way to the Michigan State 27. Yep. Because, again, there, there's no offense this defense is capable of, is incapable of yielding yards to in the, in the wrong moment. So, yeah. Ultimately, <clears throat> that's the adjustment that I want to see from this game. They did a lot of things that I don't think that they'll do again as far as the lackluster game plan. I don't think. I think they know how important this game against Purdue is. But the one thing that I would say you got to change is they think their offense is a lot better than it actually is. You got to take the points because yeah. we're nine games into this thing, and the red zone offense has been atrocious, regardless of the opponent. Uh, against uh, Michigan State's a mid defense, against some bad defenses, the red zone offense was terrible. If you're going to put a lot on your defense and you're going to play a lot of this clock management stuff, you have to take the points. Yeah, I say it. this as a person who hates short field goals. You've got to do it. Yeah, you again, with your defense playing as good as it is, you just want to keep applying pressure to the opposing offense on end, on the field and on the scoreboard. If they see that it's 3 nothing, now it's 6 nothing, now it's 9 like Those are disappointing outcomes for your offense, but it's still something that the other team has to at least match. Yeah, they add those... those each one... By itself is always a defensible decision, right? But they add up. You just can't keep doing it. Yeah. And I, I really hope that there is a bit of a bit of self reflection here on 
I mean, there, there so many things I want I want them to have changed about the way they approach this game. That's the only one I think there's a real shot at, and that would make a, a, a difference. And is really just a matter of what decisions are you making as coaches in the game. All right. So moving on to the last game in the Big Ten footprint for the week, um, the Michigan Rutgers game. Michigers. 52-17 to 17 to the Wolverines, probably about what you would have expected. I think that actually represents a cover for the Wolverines. A little bit surprising if I had then told you that at halftime, the score was 17-14 in favor of Rutgers. Uh, and then Michigan outscored them 38-0 after halftime. Look, honestly, it was a little bit of a mirage that the game was ever that close. Special teams really kept Rutgers in this game. They had a blocked field goal. They had a punt block for a touchdown. So Shiano is back on his BS doing the special team stuff to give his team a big edge. And you better believe I am terrified of what that means for Michigan State's kicking game. But the other side of it is, against that kind of opposing special teams, I have to assume Mel Tucker's not going to try to kick anything. Not field goals, not extra points. Punts probably still going to have to happen occasionally, but they've been good there this year. So that Rutgers was able to hang in there for a half, mostly just a function of a defense that did its able best, but the offense was doing so little that eventually the pressure got to be too much. Michigan tightened up the special teams things in the second half. And look, this is understandable, okay? When you're a program like Michigan, you're coming off an emotional game the week before against a hated rival who's had you on pinned to the mat for most of the last generation of players. They just came off of their Super Bowl, all right? And so Michigan came into this game, and they weren't appropriately up and sharp for the first half, but they got themselves together after halftime. That's the kind of mental adjustment you like to see. For the Gers, Gavin Wimsett was healthy. He had he logged some pretty good snaps. He did. And then... He, I mean, yes. And, and I then... said he logged some pretty good snaps. <laughs> I don't mean to say and then there he were was a force of nature in this game. But no, there was absolutely promise with this dude. It yes. was good to see him get a full game. Right. And and so now the, the thing there is, well, you, after you fired your coordinator, you went to Vedral for a game, and now you're back to Wimsat. Are you sticking with Wimsat the rest of the way, or what are we doing here? I have to assume that's the plan. It, but, you know, the thing is, Rutgers still has a bowl game within reach as well. And yep, they have to two do wins to get. They have to do next week as one of their more winnable opportunities. So, anyway, I, I don't think we learned a whole lot about either of these teams. If you had bet, the, if you had bet the cover, for example, you you were probably a little bit concerned by how things went in the first half. But honestly, it was really just a matter of time before Michigan's pressure wore down Rutgers on both sides of the ball. Um, I still, honestly. This Michigan passing offense still feels like there should be more to it than there is. Yeah, I was going to say that is one takeaway that uh, Rutgers kind of... Rutgers was able to limit J.J. McCarthy to under 50%, 151 yards. And of course, you know, every time that you're talking about what does this mean for Michigan, there's always the subtitle in there. What does this mean for Michigan about their game against Ohio State, Right. And this means that if somebody is able to key in and stop the run, then J.J. McCarthy might not necessarily be able to punish them for that. However, that might not matter against this Ohio State team. Right. So it, it, we end up asking a lot of the same questions we did most of last year. 
but we now have the context of, well, it might not actually matter. Um, yeah, it, I guess the only other thing you would see here, I, I haven't seen any updates on this. It's still pretty early in the week, but Ryan Hayes was scratched from this game with an injury in the left tackle for Michigan, and then their outstanding left guard, Trevor Keegan. Also, he was still playing in the fourth quarter, I believe, when he sustained that injury, and at that point it was, I think, something like 42 or 45 to 17. So one of those things where it's like, you know, if you're going to leave your starters in there, if you're trying to roll up stats for your Heisman candidate running back like this, you're playing a dangerous game and maybe you kind of deserve what what comes to you then if something should go wrong in that way. I don't wish anything on the individual players, but from a team perspective, if you're going to be a jackass like that, stupid games win you stupid prizes sometimes. Well, I mean, there's got to be a non-zero number of, of Michigan fans who are thinking like, okay, we can probably take Oh, I'm sure, yeah. I mean, our, our own colleague, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure our Rocky Mountain Blue and, and Brian Gillis were both screaming to start putting in the backups much earlier. Uh, Obviously, I'm sure all the thing. nervous energy for the Illinois game dissipated from them. Maybe not, the, maybe not necessarily completely valid there, because after all, what was Illinois doing but paying the Nebraska tax? <laughs> right. So that concludes the week that was in the conference. We'll take a quick spin around the rest of the country. A very busy week if you are a playoff watcher. Georgia dispatches Tennessee, meaning the three-team SEC playoff was momentarily in order. But then Alabama lost to LSU in overtime. As Brian Kelly, it, the absolutely the onion meme of the worst guy you know makes a great point. Went for two in overtime, at home, won it. CBS's announcers were like, they're going to remember this game in Baton Rouge for a long time. I'm like, dude, they won a national title a couple years ago. Yeah. And I don't think they remembered that because of how well they celebrate down there. So let's not get carried away. Um, and then also, Clemson getting absolutely housed by Notre Dame. So I'm sure if you're interested... By the time this drops, it'll be pushing Tuesday night. You can just go right ahead and tune into the two-hour block of programming about it on the four letters. Do you know what? Notre Dame has a 27-game winning streak against ACC opponents in regular season games. Did you know that shit? No, I had no idea. That's insane. Isn't it? Well, it's also... They don't play Clemson every year because they're still doing this limited ACC schedule, right? And there have been a couple years where it's like, all right, they're scheduled this year. They play Duke, Boston College, Duke again, Miami, and Boston College again. So there's been a little bit of the dot. And the other thing is, last year's fun notwithstanding, let's not pretend that the ACC has ever been an especially deep conference since Notre Dame has been established with them. So all those things are true. And nonetheless, that is a very impressive mark. Elsewhere in the country, uh, North Carolina has somehow gotten to 8-1. and one. I had no idea. I would have assumed they were like 5-4. and four. Uh, They sure tried to not get to 8-1 and one against Virginia. Oklahoma State got bodied for the second week in a row, this time by Kansas. Um, so can't help but wonder if maybe, like, did the January 6th subpoena server get to Stillwater and get into the coaching building somehow? Like, is that what happened to that program the last couple weeks? Goodness gracious. You know what this means. Kansas is now bowl eligible, which means that the longest Power 5 bowl drought belongs to the Nebraska Cornhuskers. Wow. We're yep. just going to let that sink in, just like Elon. Elsewhere in more interesting news, the green wave continues rising. There's now a three-way bid between two of the teams that are for the people, Tulane and Coastal Carolina, 
And Liberty Biberty would be the third serious New Year's Six candidate. I guess you could put Central Florida in there as well. Uh, of course, the tax shelters went ahead and defeated Arkansas because an SEC program should not be scheduling a school like that. But they did, so they got what was coming to them. Syracuse firmly turning back into a pumpkin with Garrett Schrader hurt. No longer the season when pumpkins are desirable either. Ours were carried away by the trash this morning. Texas A&M falling to 3-6 and six overall, 1-5 in league play. Do you know Texas A&M is actually the worst record of every Aggies team in Division I? This that includes, includes New Mexico State. Yes, who is 3-5. <laughs> um, Drinkwitz was extended by Missouri. After losing to Kentucky. <laughs> After losing to Kentucky to fall to 4-5. and five. And the way that they lost that game was... Kentucky was punting the ball back to Missouri in a situation where the Tigers conceivably could have come back and won the game, but then Missouri's special teams roughed the punter after a snap over the punter's head when he went, retrieved the punt, got the punt off, and then as he was landing, you know, like the desperation, like 30 yards behind the line punt, they still ran into him, and it was a penalty, and they picked up the first down and ran off the clock. My God. That's the stuff that Missouri's administration looked at and was like, yeah, we're on the right track. Let's extend that guy, get a little bit more of that going. <laughs> so. so, in other news, UConn has moved to five wins on the year after defeating the UMass Minutemen. I just can't, I, I'm wondering how many other downtrodden programs are going to look at what Jim Mora Jr. is doing there and decide, you know what we need to get our program back on the tracks is to make our coach live in a haunted house. (laughs) Haunted house. (laughs) Gotta do it. A very confused Jim Mora was spotted in the locker room in a sort of a celebration not knowing what to say when one of the players, of course, being one of them gosh darn Zoomers, said, He's him. He's him, Mora. And then, to which Jim Mora just kind of looks bewildered at everybody's idea. Yeah, he's him! He's him! Him, Mora! Coach him! And, you know. Now... You examine UConn's five wins. They are <laughs> well. Don't, don't, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Still at a level that UConn has not been able to compete at for years, and still, like, unless I'm mistaken, not more than one of them is an FCS win. Correct. Meaning, if they get one more, they are still bowl eligible. So yes, uh, of course, the most insane game of the week was Houston at SMU. Absolutely bonkers. Higher score than the basketball game those teams played last year. And it was in regulation that this happened, too. The game was 56-35 at halftime. Tanner Mordecai had nine touchdowns in that game. He also ran for a touchdown. (laughs) Uh, Clayton Toon, in a losing effort, had 527 yards and seven touchdowns, and also a 51-yard rushing touchdown, 111 yards on the ground. (laughs) Absolute Pat Mahomes, Texas Tech energy. Just unbelievable. Actually, it was interesting, because Tanner Mordecai's nine touchdowns, they tied Houston's Case Keenum for the most of all time. Uh... Can you name the NFL team that Case Keenum is currently playing for? Oh, it's the Bills, right? Because Yeah, yeah cuz they're going to do Case Keenum to Stefan Diggs against the Vikings next week. <laughs> Reverse Minneapolis miracle. But in any case, this uh, you know, Houston was doing onside kicks with like 10 minutes to go knowing there was not a chance in hell they were ever going to stop 
Yeah, the SMU offense. I almost kind of appreciate that. Like, I did, they can't trust this deep. They're not going to do anything. We might. It doesn't matter how much yardage we give them. It's just all going to be soaked up by this opposing offense. So I kind of appreciate that level of honesty. Anything else that caught your eye in the week that was in college football? Uh, Mississippi State beat Auburn in a game where Mike Leach had a discussion with his receivers and then took up all of the chairs that they had been using on the sidelines. <laughs> uh, never change, Leach. Well, I, you know, hold on. Change somewhat. You know what we're talking about. But as far as the, the football stuff, never change. He, he even made a callback to fat little girl for girlfriends in his post-game presser. I mean, what more can you ask for? The vibe of a man who regrets nothing. <laughs> Absolutely. So... I don't know what else, uh, nothing in particular caught my eye for the rest of, you know, for the rest of the country because, of course, I was preoccupied with the way that Illinois losing did two things. One, because now the presumptive Big Ten West lo- uh, champ has two bad losses. Well, that means the Big Ten can't possibly get two teams in because it's like, oh, but you beat Illinois, who then lost to these two teams, right? But now that also means... There's no way Illinois goes to the Rose Bowl because Penn State uh, played in a Rose Bowl that was like six hours long, and they got so many ads. <laughs> There's no way Illinois would get them that much ad revenue by virtue of not playing the game for as long a period of time. Well, if you think about it in that sense, a Big Ten West team is always going to be at a disadvantage then because the Minnesotas, the Iowas, the Illinois, the Wisconsins, who run the ball three-quarters of the time... That equates to a three-hour game runtime, and that's going to cost us money. So, sorry, you're going to have to go to the pitch right now. Your source for Big Ten Talk, it's Off Tackle Empire!